Welcome to the Short Term Show, the show about short-term rentals and long-term wealth, with real property owners hosting real properties who are crushing it in the vacation and short-term rental space. And here's your host, Avery Carl. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Short Term Show. Today, we have Michael Albaum. This is a really interesting guest. He is the head real estate coach and academy program manager over at Roofstock. Uh, if you guys don't know what Roofstock is, definitely head over to their website and check it out. Michael, how's it going today? Oh, so good, Avery. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you. Yeah, yeah I'm really excited to interview you. I think you're going to have a lot of interesting perspective uh, for our listeners. So let's go ahead and get started. Tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you're up to, how you got started in real estate investing. Yeah, totally. So I am a California guy through and through. If you're watching this on video, you can see I'm bundled up and it's like, you know, 55 degrees outside, which is cold for me. So I grew up in Southern California, went to school on the Central Coast and then went and got a kick butt or what I thought was a kick butt Bay Area fire protection engineering job after graduation. I'm like, this is awesome. I'm killing it. My salary is, is fantastic. And then I saw what home prices were for rent and to buy and what how expensive California taxes were. And I was like, wait, this is not as awesome as I thought it was. So read this book, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners have had a chance to read as well, called Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and was just like, this makes sense. He was talking about real estate, owning business. This just makes sense. I was a total numbers guy because I was an engineer. So I was making my own spreadsheets and just said, you know, I can do this. I can buy real estate. And if I do this like once a year for 10 years, that will be awesome. And so I started doing that and just started making purchase after purchase. And I had a little bit of an unfair advantage in a couple of capacities. One is that I had a really strong salary as an engineer. And two is that I was actually traveling for work around the Northwest US. And so I got to like physically go to all these different real estate markets, have someone else pay me to go, have someone else pay for my food, my gas, my travel. And on my downtime, I could just look at the real estate market. I could, I went and met with agents. I went and met with property managers. And if my old boss, Dave is listening, sorry, Dave, but thanks for the free time. And so I was picking up properties kind of all over the place and thought, this is awesome. I'm so well diversified. If anything happens in market A, I'm in B through E and eventually just hit this wall, like this mental wall where I was herding cats, trying to chase down six different property managers. And I was using property management for everything. So I was really managing the manager across the country, if you will. And I was like, this is just overwhelming. And a buddy of mine who was a lot further advanced in his real estate career came to me. He's like, Michael, you're doing it all wrong. Go focus on one or two markets, hammer them hard, watch what happens. It'll blow your mind. And I was like, that's kind of counterintuitive to everything I thought I knew about investing, but I'll give it a go. And that's what I've been doing for like the last five years. And it's been amazing. Absolutely amazing. Okay. There's a lot of things that I want to hit on that you just said. So first of all, I think this is going to be a really good interview because you coming from an engineering background, your brain works the exact opposite way that my brain works. I am yeah, not I get that a lot. an engineer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, I think this is going to be a really interesting interview. So a um, few things that I want to touch on that you said, actually a lot of them, but the first one is how old were you when you started? When was your first deal? So my first deal, I was like 22, 23, something like that. So um, <clears throat> a few years after the crash, like 2012, 2013-ish is I think when that first deal was. And it's funny because I didn't even recognize 
I was kind of so insulated during the crash in the sense that I was in school and I'm so thankful for that. I was in university. So like I heard about it and I'm, I'm so thankful and fortunate my family wasn't massively affected by it. And so I didn't even realize, like I was so new, I didn't realize what the cycle the market was in, where prices were. Um, that very first property, I was, it was like way outside my comfort zone and way outside my budget. Cause again, I was living in my spreadsheet world and I said, okay, I can afford something about $200,000. And everything my agent showed me was like 350 and up, or excuse me, 300 and up. And I was like, uh, that's a hundred grand more than I'm looking to spend. And so once I broke it down, <clears throat> because that's what I did for work, we used to quantify, I used to work for an insurance company. Woo, so exciting. Uh, we would quantify and mitigate risk. That was what my job was. And so when I took a step back and said, well, okay, it's a hundred thousand dollars, but what does that mean in terms of monthly payment? I was like, oh, like 450 bucks. If I can cover that, that's not a huge deal. So once I kind of took a step back from this massive debt figure that I was looking at, uh, and I was just able to break it down to a month, like what's my monthly responsibility and what's the worst case scenario, something else I did for work. I realized it wasn't that bad. Like my worst case scenario just was totally tolerable. And so I said, okay, well, this is the end of the spectrum and the worst case, best case is over here. Also, that's very exciting. Probably land somewhere in the middle. So I guess let's go for it. And was that a primary or a, an investment? No, that was a, for investment. So I was oh, living okay. up in the Bay Area and this was down in a Southern California oh, market gotcha. that I knew growing up. Um, yeah, I, I was investing for like 10 years as a renter. I rented the entire time and, and I decided I didn't want to, I didn't want to buy a primary until my rentals could pay for it. That's, that's a good idea. And that's actually a lot of people do it the opposite way. Like they want to get their house that they live in first before they start investing. So right. uh, that's definitely, yeah, that's, that's interesting. And no house hacks in there or heavy house hacks. No, no house hacks. Actually right now the house I'm in, I, we just bought a place up in the North Bay outside San Francisco and this is a house hack. So it's nice. uh it's not zoned to duplex, but we got an upstairs downstairs unit. So hopefully we're going to get pictures live in the next couple of days. So I'm very excited for that. Oh, amazing. So you're going to, are you going to long-term rent or short-term the bottom? We're going to do um, probably a hybrid. We're probably going to do midterm on the upstairs, like traveling nurses, month-long Airbnb stays. And then we'll do, um, We have. I used to live in a van for like seven months, was traveling across the country. And so we still got some trip, like month-long trips planned. So we'll probably short-term our unit, the bottom portion when we're gone. I assume a camper van and not just like a van van. Yeah, yeah, not, not like a Toyota <laughs> Sienna. Yeah, we, we, we converted like an old box truck and it's been awesome. That is awesome. We're going out in our motorhome for a month in um, in the end of May, but we have to have a motorhome because we have you know kids and dogs that come with us and all kinds of things. We got a whole circus. So right, right. Um, As my mother in law yeah. loves to remind me, um, babies love vans. I'm like, yeah, I get the hint, Tony. <laughs> Yeah, mother-in-laws will do that, especially the mom's mom. My mom did that to my husband. She pulled him aside when I was, I think, 28. She was like, you know, after 30 is a geriatric pregnancy, which is not even true. Like, she just totally made that up. Um, oh, so but, good. Yeah, but back to what we were talking about. Okay, so how much of a dent in your mortgage do you think that, uh, that doing this type of house hack will put? Um, it's Bay area. So my, my mortgage is, is significant, unfortunately. So we're hoping for 70 to 75% is going to be covered by, by the renter. And so we, we looked at it as, um, if we can get, if we, if our portion of the mortgage taxes, insurance, utilities, the whole shebang is equivalent or slightly less than what we would be paying for rent in the area. That's a win. 
And so I know a lot of house awesome. hackers out there, it's like, oh, if you don't live for free, or you're not making money, you've lost. Maybe, but I think it's all personal, personal preference, personal decision. So could we go rent a place where we're paying for our mortgage, our piece of the mortgage? If yes, we we're doing just fine. You know, it's it's so market specific, things like that. So I think real estate investors get so caught up in metrics that they forget like doing something like that in the Bay Area is entirely different than doing something like that in Starkville, Mississippi. So uh, yes, I, people get so caught up in the in the real estate investor. Just it has to be this metric. But the answer to everything really is it depends because it depends on the market. It depends on your goals. So that's I think that's really smart of you guys to to do that. So uh, let's talk Thanks. about where all of your rentals are. So you did, you were investing for how long before you were like, wait a minute, I need to, I need to zone in on one or two markets and not do this all over the place thing. Yeah. It was like five, six years the, okay. while I was working as a fire protection engineer. So all I was right. there and for how like many? seven or eight years. Yeah. Okay. And how many did you accumulate in a bunch of different markets before you decided to narrow down? Oh man. It was like six different markets and it was like, eight or nine properties that was like 14 units something like that okay so just a well, smattering <laughs> uh what was your favorite market of of that smattering ketchikan alaska oh wow like, that is quite a market i've never heard anybody <laughs> talk about that one <laughs> yeah yeah it was wild i was up there for work i used to spend like a month a year up in alaska and i was doing like fishing trips and again this is all for work so thanks again dave but uh yeah i just found this incredible deal and and bought it and it's been my best performing property to date awesome awesome so how many what's in your portfolio right now total <clears throat> so now I think I'm at like 60 units, maybe just shy of 60 units. And when I got that advice from my friend to go hammer on one or two markets, I jumped to commercial multifamily. I was dabbling in small multifamily previously, but I just said, holy smokes, out in the Midwest, I mean, the price point and how far your dollar goes, I was buying, you know, eight, nine, 10 unit buildings for what I pay for a single family house in Southern California. So I was like, this is amazing. And I was really doing value add. Uh, kind of without even knowing it. And I was too green, too naive still at that point to really know about multifamily, like commercial multifamily. So I was just learning and absorbing as much as I could, trying to teach myself on the fly and definitely took some licks along the way. Uh, but I'm in the middle of a couple of refinances right now on a couple of those properties and cap rates are compressed, value's been added, NOI is looking great. So I am very excited to see how those appraisals come back. Awesome. So how many, what, what is your asset mix of those 60 units? Do you know offhand? Uh, so it's all commercial multifamily with the exception of one building. It's a mixed use building with two commercial spaces. Uh, but you're asking like the, the unit breakdown. Yeah. Yeah. Just give us a little more. Info. So there's like, there's an eight unit, a five unit, a seven unit, an eight unit and a 15 unit. Okay. Awesome. And, and then I just picked up a short-term rental out in the Smoky Mountains, which we're very excited about. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about that. I know you probably don't have a lot to say about it yet because it's brand new, but what is it? Yeah, so it's a single-family home, and it was actually the former head uh, ranger for the Smoky Mountains. It was her primary residence. So it was very well taken care of, great-looking property. And I was in the middle of – I had this I had this real pain-in-the-butt mixed unit 12 unit building, mixed use 12 unit building out in the Midwest. And it was just nonstop headaches, death by a thousand cuts. And then I got hit with this massive repair bill. I'm like, screw it. I'm going to sell it. I'm going to get out of it and just go do something that's much easier. 
So 1031 exchanged it, went from a 12 unit to a single family, uh, a big single family on the Midwest. And it's been performing just like a little rock star over the last couple of months. January was pretty slow, but that's what they said to be expected. So we're getting some big repair work done, getting a hot tub installed, getting a deck rebuilt, that sort of thing. But um, it's awesome. Like just watching the, re the reservations come in is like, it's so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, what made you decide to pivot from, or not necessarily pivot from multi, but add to add a single family short-term rental to a multi-unit or sorry, a multi-building portfolio? Yeah. I, I had gotten my butt kicked like up and down the street for the last couple of years with a couple of my value add projects. And I was chatting with my buddy who recommended swapping, you know, to a singular particular market. And he's like, dude, it's just so much work. Like, yes, of course you can win big, but it takes up a lot of mental bandwidth. And I was, it just hit a point where I was like, you know what? I'm okay not growing anymore. I thought one day I wanted to have this massive portfolio. And I hit that. I was at like 75 units at the most. I'm like, this is like, that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't help me any. I'm much more concerned with the cash flow number. And if I can do more with less, awesome. That's a big win. And so my younger brother actually had bought a place out in the Smokies back in July or a couple months prior. He's like, dude, it's awesome. It's so good. It's amazing. And so I said, okay, what the heck? I'll give it a go. And uh, so I traded, I traded down in terms of units, but I traded up in terms of how much mental bandwidth it was, it was taking from me. Yeah. Yeah. I totally understand that. And I, I hear a lot of people who will say, oh, there's, or I don't hear them. I see them in Facebook groups, like being keyboard warriors saying, oh, well, there's, there's no deals left in the Smokies. There's no deals left in the Smokies. But I, I bought two short-term rentals last year, but I bought three apartment buildings uh, in the Midwest. So one, the, the way the prices are in the Smokies now, if I were to go buy another one right this second, the cash on cash return would still be higher than the multi-units that I'm buying. But right now I'm, I'm working on that just to diversify the portfolio, their value adds. So uh, they, in a couple of years, they'll be making a lot more money than what they are. But in terms of ease of financing and cash on cash return cash flow, even though it's not the, the cash on cash return is not like 70, 80% like it was years ago, which was ridiculous, by the way. That's not like a standard. Right, um, right. That should not yeah, be the, the bar. More, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's still more than any other asset class out there at the moment that I've, you know, and I'm pretty involved in a lot of different markets and a lot of different types of investments right now, personally. And the Smokies still are, even though they're a lot more expensive than they used to be, some of the highest cash on cash returns you can get in any type of real estate investing, unless you yep. find a unicorn. Yeah. Yeah. And if you do give us a call, cause I would love yeah, to. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Same. <laughs> I actually, uh, ask me after this, I might have something for you that I just okay. thought about the soft market. <laughs> okay. All right. I, I will. <laughs> um, so let's, uh, pivot really quick and talk about your real estate coaching career. So you are the head real estate coach at Roofstock. So yes. what types of people are coming to you through the Roofstock Academy program and um, how are you helping them? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking. So all types are coming through. I have beginners, I have advanced folks, I have old folks, young folks, everyone in between. So anybody who's interested in just learning more about real estate investing has come through the Academy. And we can talk about whatever it is that you're looking to accomplish, which is really why I love the one-on-one -on -one coaching aspect so much. So 
if I'm not a good fit to be your coach, we likely have some other coaches in the queue who are. And so depending on if you're trying to specialize in Burr or international investing or multifamily or single family or small or small multifamily, like whatever it is, we've got someone that's done it. And we'll tell you if we haven't, we're like we're total straight up crew. So um, really it's open to anyone, which is kind of the beauty of it. And so it's definitely, I will say not for wholesalers, probably less so for flippers. That's really not what we do. We really kind of specialize in the long-term buy and hold strategy. Um, but I've done a lot of value add. So there's kind of that aspect as well. <clears throat> so yeah, if, if you've done anything in real estate, but you're looking to level up, do more, scale the portfolio, get involved in different type of asset class, we've got a place for you here. That's awesome. I'm, I'm such a fan. I think people get so caught up in flipping and appreciation sometimes that they lose sight of like the for me the real gold is not that okay i made twenty thousand dollars flipping this it's that four or five hundred dollars a month on a long term or that four or five thousand dollars a month on a short term that is the important thing because i don't care you know i i'm 33 years old i can make money doing just about anything right now if i had to go you know get like a manual labor job right now, I could do that. But what I'm worried about is off in the future, I want what I'm doing today to take care of everything tomorrow. So the buy and hold thing is really like, that's really been the only thing for me uh, up until this point. Like I've got no intention of ever going to flip or worrying about appreciation. Of course, I don't want anything to lose value over time, which it won't, but the cat the cash flow for me is really the most important thing and that cash coming in the door every week do you agree with that oh a thousand percent a thousand percent i was i chatted with a guy a while back and and he was like oh i don't you know i don't see the need to invest in real estate because i love my job it pays me well this and that and i'd heard a quote <clears throat> previously that i shared with them and i was like well what if your boss gets fired what if your boss leaves what if you don't love your job and he, the, the quote was, dig your well before you're thirsty. And I was like, oh, that's so great. impactful. Like, <laughs> yeah, today things might be great, but tomorrow they might not. You maybe get hit by a bus and you can't work anymore. What does that mean for you? And so if you can build these little streams of income that pay you every single year, like that's amazing. And also think about as an employee, the work you do next year, you start over. You get paid for the work you do in that year. You don't get paid for the work you did last year and two years ago. But in real estate, you do. So it's just like, it's a mind boggling asset class. Yes, it is. And I love that quote, um, dig your well before you're thirsty. I'm, I'm writing that down. I'm snagging that. Totally, totally future. pay it yeah. forward. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, and even with, when you have, when you're dependent on just one income stream, like a W2 job, it can be as easy as just having off communication with your boss or your new boss that leads to you not having a job anymore. Like if you didn't voice one thing where you were like, kind of, um, I have a great example. So, uh, when I was in my corporate job, uh, we did a lot of, it was with a, a music publishing company. So we did a lot of award shows for our artists. And during those award shows, we had to, you know, it was like, you're working all weekend, you're there for the setup and it's like a huge big deal. And I told my boss, man, I love doing these things. Like she asked me to do something and was like, is that cool? Or do you have time? And I'm like, yeah, I love doing these things. I was serious. I was being genuine. And she thought I was being sarcastic and she didn't say anything about it, but it got brought up later when some other things that I probably did do wrong because I was a terrible employee, <laughs> but she, she brought it up that I was like 
being sarcastic and like not cool. And I totally did not mean it like that. I was being genuine. So it can be something just as small as that, that starts you on a bad path down your corporate job yep, path. Totally. So yeah, it's just the, the boss thing was not for me. I just, yep. I, I yeah. get it. I'll, I'll share just <laughs> a really quick it. story, Avery, with, with all the do. listeners. So um, my dad actually passed away several years ago and I I'm told sorry. the company, thanks. I told the company I was working for, I'm like, hey, I need to be home. I need to go home with mom and kind of help out around the house and stuff. So my my then girlfriend, now wife, came home with me and we were home for four months and I was able to do totally remote work and it was great. It was I'm so glad I was able to do that. And when I came back, when I moved back up to the Bay, I was like, you know what? Some just says I'm not quite right. I need to kind of go check out for a little bit and do a hard reset. And I asked my company, I said, hey, I need six months. I need six months to go reset, to go and be and do and kind of deal with this on my own. And they're like, I'm sorry, we can't, we can't do that. And I said, okay, well then I'm sorry, I can't be an employee here anymore. And it was because of real estate that I was able to walk away and say, I don't need this job. I was doing it because I liked it. I liked the people, I liked the environment, I liked the work, um, but I don't have to be here. And so I was able to, to leave my job a couple of years ago and I was went and traveled the world with my wife for about a year. And it was like one of the best things I've ever done. So there's no way That's I could amazing. have done that without real estate. That is amazing to, to give yourself so it's not necessarily the financial freedom, but the freedom that being financially free allows you to freedom of time so that you can take that time after a really traumatic experience and do what you want to do to get yourself, you know, kind of back on track after a really bad, after a really bad time. That's so important because I think that even like as Americans and our parents' generation that like mental health didn't exist. It's like, not a thing. everybody has anxiety. Yeah. Right. You're not special. Everybody has anxiety. Stop <laughs> that. <laughs> so, um, I think that, you know, having the ability to be able to do that for yourself and knowing yourself and saying, okay, I need to take this time for me. And real estate has allowed me to be able to do that. That's really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's great. Um, all right. So let's talk about how you're, how you have financed your deals historically. Have you ever done any creative financing? Because I know a lot of people listening and probably a lot of the people that you coach are like, I'm really ready to get, get involved in real estate investing, but I only have this much money. How do I do this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's such a good, like such a good question. So to your question specifically, yes, I've done a bunch of different creative financing strategies. So one, I've used friends and family money. That was a really great one. And just that if people have extra money lying around and want to earn a return, um, it's kind of a win-win. And so if you're like, hey, I've got this deal, I'm going to pay you X percent every single month, principal and interest to give me your money. Um, a lot of people that have extra money that don't want to get involved in real estate themselves, but don't necessarily want to park their money in a bank or the stock market, it's a perfect fit for. And so people can earn a return. You can get your deal done. It's a win-win-win. Um, that can be a really great one to get into deals, especially if you don't have a massive down payment, because as, a, as most of your listeners know, banks are going to require 15, probably 20, 25% down for your traditional investment property. Well, if you go friends and family, you can structure it however you want, wait a couple of years, hopefully the property appreciates. You might then have some built up equity in the property. Then you can go get your traditional 80% mortgage, 75% mortgage, like big time win. So that's one that I've used. I've also used cash partners in the past. Uh, where we'll split deals. I'll do all of the stuff. I just need you to bring the money and then we'll split things down the middle. That's been a fun one. Uh, commercial financing is one that I've used in the past. Traditional financing I've used in the past from, from banks. Um, so yeah, I've, I've done a bunch of different things. I've never used hard money, but what I have done is used HELOCs. 
And so if you've got a primary resident, and this is what I love, love, love to do, especially with uh, a lot of folks that have equity in their primaries, is either do a cash out refi on your primary, you're borrowing money at two, 3%, and you can go invest it, earn six, seven, eight, 9% on your money. I mean, you're creating this arbitrage out of thin air. Or if you've got a HELOC on your primary or maybe a HELOC on an investment property, using that as your down and then going and financing the rest. And especially these work great for burrs because you were able to finance your HELOC out. Um, and then also something I've done is I've actually taken a loan from my 401k. So as part of my down, as my down payment. So that's been really, really great as well. And most recently, I just did a, um, it turned, I was thinking about doing a flip, but it turned into kind of a buy and hold, but I recently just sold it uh, through my through my self-directed IRA. So I bought the property, rehabbed it, got a tenant in place um, through my IRA, and that was all financed via my IRA account. Awesome. That's a, you've done done it all. You've basically done it all. <laughs> Thanks. Just enough to be dangerous. So for let's talk about friends and family money for a minute, because that's something that I've never done that I, I would like to hear about. Because for me, I just, even when I needed the help, it just never occurred to me because I was like, yeah, they're going to say no, whatever. How do you approach friends and family to do something like this, especially if they're not necessarily real estate savvy. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? Yeah, I think numbers speak so loud to most people. And so when I can take a, a loan and say, okay, Avery, do you have $100,000 sitting in the bank? Well, yes, Michael, yes, I do. And I said, okay, what are you earning on it now? What is that money earning you every single month? Oh, probably 27 cents, 29 cents, something like that. So when I can say, okay, well, if you lend it to me in a mortgage, couple of things are going to happen. One is your money is secure because the mortgage is actually tied to the property. So if I don't pay you, you get the property. And here's the property. Look at all the nice pictures. Look how well it rents, yada, yada, yada. And two, I'm going to pay you a mortgage payment every single month. You're essentially going to be my bank. And I'm going to pay you every single month. And the loan that we have is going to be over X number of years, uh, amortized over X number of years, for X number of years at X interest rate. And so I'm going to pay you a thousand bucks a month. And you're like, well, holy smokes, thousand bucks a month, a lot more than 29 cents a month. Seems like a pretty good deal. So you just have to, I think, phrase it and frame it for folks in terms that they understand. And most people understand dollars and cents. Maybe not so amortization periods, maybe not so loan terms. That might not speak to people. That might be way over their head and you might confuse them. And so I think you really want to read your audience and, and kind of read the room, determine who you're speaking to. But when you can tell them, hey, look, this is how much I'm going to pay you every single month for the next X number of years, people can totally get behind that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think when you phrase it like that, and then especially what got me there that I wouldn't have necessarily thought about if I went to like my parents or somebody when I was 22 is, oh, hey, you get the, if I screw this up, you get the property. I think a lot of people are like, you want me to give you $100,000? What if you don't pay it? And then right. they think, oh, well, I'm now on the hook or you, you know, you get the property and you're getting the money for it. So that right. makes sense. Right. Um, Oh, shoot. I had something else. Matt, cut that. I totally spaced. Oh, well, I'll ask you another question and maybe you'll remember it later. Okay, perfect. Uh, so <laughs> how do you set up your cash partner deals or how did you? Yeah, so it was super simple. We just did straight 50-50. So my partner came in, bought the deal. Um, we ended up buying it all cash because that just made more sense. And it was a value add. So getting debt on it was going to be pretty difficult anyhow. So I said, hey, give me the money. I'll take care of everything. Uh, and then I can write you a check every single month. 
And they were like, uh, okay, that sounds good. Cool. And so I, I showed them my pro forma, what the projections were, uh, ended up not hitting those like at all. I was way off on the rehab budget because we, when we got in there, things just started going sideways immediately. And so that was the 12 unit mixed use that I ended up 1031ing out of, uh, but they made a killing on the exit. So they were plenty, plenty happy with that. Awesome. Well, let's circle back to your students again really quick, because I really I really love to hear because I do a lot of not necessarily straight up educating, but like educating our clients in a roundabout way. Yeah. Uh, so I really love to hear other people's perspective on teaching. So you've got a lot of a lot of students coming through your door. What is one thing that you see that separates the ones who are end up being successful at this from the ones who just kind of like do the, I'm going to obsess over this for a little while and then move on to something else and obsess on something else. Yeah. Truthfully, I think it's the ones that engage with the one-on-one -on -one coaching aspect of our program. I see those students far and away surpassing in terms of deal flow and action taking than most other folks. And I really do think part of that is like having a coach or a mentor or, or, or someone to check in with an accountability buddy, as I always like to call them. For, <laughs> it, I mean, it forces you to do stuff in the sense of mm -hmm. if I make a commitment to myself, oh yeah, I'm going to do that tomorrow. And then I don't have to tell anyone about it. It's easy to say, oh, I'll do it next week. I'll, I'll kick the can down the road. But if I'm talking to a physical person uh, and that, that person is going to hold me accountable, now I've got to do stuff. And I think it, like, I think I totally liken it to a personal trainer. If I was about like, to say that like a personal trainer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you're like, I'm going to go to the gym and you're like, ah, I don't feel like it. But if you know, there's someone waiting on you at the other end of the gym, you're probably, you're, you're more inclined to go. And so I think that those people can get a very personalized strategy and they can also talk about what issues they're having, what hurdles they're trying to overcome and what their own situation looks like. Because I think it's often hard for people to take information in and apply it to their own set of circumstances. It's easy to say, oh, well, that's not me or that doesn't quite fit, so I can't do it. Well, maybe yeah. you're just not understanding it or looking at it through the proper lens or angle. And so that's what coaching did for me. And that's what I think it can do for others. It's like, oh, let's take your situation. Let's take the information you just learned about, marry the two and figure out how you move forward. Yeah, I think paid coaching can be so beneficial for people because especially I want to separate the word coaching from like guru courses that are like tens of thousands of dollars that I've got a lot of opinions on that. But <laughs> you're a good company. <laughs> so actual coaching, it can be so helpful. So for somebody like myself who I didn't grow up around real estate investing, I didn't have any friends when I started that were doing it. And I was, my husband and I were truly, it was just the two of us alone trying to educate ourselves. It would have been really helpful back then if there was somebody who was just like, no, don't do this. And we, we never really made a mistake, but like our very first property that we bought, we didn't even know it was called real estate investing at the time. We just bought it because we were like, oh yeah, we're going to be so smart and buy this property and it's going to appreciate so much that by the time our future kids go to college, we'll just sell it and pay for their college and we're the smartest people ever. That's right, not right. a good way to go about things. So luckily that one ended up being a really good property and it wasn't a mistake, but we were ignorant to what what you should, the basis for what you should be investing on. And it would have been really helpful for somebody to say, you know, maybe that's not the best way to look at this. And then we figured it out later, but some people don't figure it out. So um, I think that coaching tools or coaching programs are a really good way for people to kind of find their way when they weren't necessarily like raised around it, or there's not really anyone in their immediate circle that's doing it. So I'm a big fan of that for sure.
Totally. And I mean, when you take a step back too and look just kind of objectively at coaching in general, athletes, the best athletes go get coaches, right? They want to enhance their performance. Top CEOs, executives go get business coaches. If they're doing it, like, I, I don't see any reason why I shouldn't have been doing it because I was very anti for a long time. I was like, no, you shouldn't have to pay for it. It should be free. Da, da, da. And the more I've gotten involved in the space, I'm like, well, those people are taking time out of their day. Why, like, why do you get to have a free lunch kind of a thing? Um, yeah. And it's not yeah. like someone's, and I love that you've made that distinction between the guru coach, you know, the 30,000, I would teach you the secret sauce that it like, that's about, you no know, run, don't walk the other direction. Um, <laughs> so go, you know, just, and if it's, if paid coaching isn't a good fit, like just go find someone that has done what it is you're looking to do or been where you're looking to go and ask them to help you. But by that same token, put yourself in their shoes. If you're at, you're more accomplished and maybe someone else, someone else asks you for help. Think about how you would want to be asked. You probably don't want someone running up to you like, oh, be, be my mentor, be my mentor. Like, can you coach me? Probably not going to be a great fit. So think of some value that you can bring to that person. How can you make their lives easier? How can you help them? How can you make them want to help you? So make them want to help you. That is such a good, like, that's a nugget right there. I actually recently, uh, probably about a month ago, somebody reached out to me randomly on email and was asking my opinion on something. I had no idea who they were and uh, they didn't necessarily ask incredibly nicely, but I, I did respond to them and I said, no, you know, it sounds like you're on the right track. Like you're doing everything right. Keep, keep doing exactly what you're doing because that was my opinion. I really did think they were doing just fine. Yeah. And they took the time to write me back to say, well, it doesn't really sound like you put any thought into this answer. And I was really looking for a more involved explanation of why. And I was like, all right, well, you're the one who reached out to me. <laughs> Holy smokes. <laughs> so, yeah. And then I was like, well, that's not going to, now you're being a jerk. So I'm not going to write you back and give you a more involved answer. But if you'd said, oh, thank you so much for that advice. Can you go into a little bit more detail about where I should change something? I would have totally done it, but he was like, well, this is a, you just glossed over this. You didn't even look. I was like, all right, then. You should have fine. just responded with the letter K. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> cool story. Cool. Because I'm petty. <laughs> all right. So Michael, thank you so much for coming. And we are getting to the last three questions of our show. We ask everyone, and I'm really interested to hear yours because you have so many coaching clients. So first one. What advice would you give to 20-year-old Michael knowing what you know now? Network more. I, for so long, was it was in this silo, thought I could do it all myself, thought I could learn it all myself, grabbing different pieces of information from different sources. And I just didn't even know this entire network of real estate investors existed. Bigger Pockets really wasn't around when I first got started investing. Rootstock wasn't around when I first got started investing. So I was just relying on myself and my dad. Uh, and we were kind of fumbling through this whole real estate investing thing. So I wish I would have spoken to, to more people that were doing it. That's great advice. I'm really excited about this one. So what advice do you have for a new investor who's just getting started investing today? I think you just have to go get educated. And I say that as a slightly biased educator, but also just <laughs> see, like having seen the people that succeed and the people that don't. Like you said, you you and your husband got lucky on that first deal that ended up working out. I also got super lucky on the on my very first deal. But like now knowing what I know now, there's so much I realized that I didn't know that I could have known for that first deal. And so education isn't hard. It's not difficult, but you just have to do it. You just have to decide that that's something you're going to do because buying a house is easy. Buying real estate is easy. You go to the bank, get a loan, whatever. And then now you own a property. 
Now, now starts the hard part. Owning and operating the real estate successfully is, I think, the much more challenging part. So understanding what goes into that, understanding what the risks are, how to mitigate those risks, um, you have to get educated. And that's a bit of a two-edged, double-edged sword because there can be a point where you're like, well, if I just, I have to take one more course before I can buy a house, have to listen to one more podcast, read one more book. So there's definitely this balancing act between too much education, that analysis paralysis versus not enough. And so I think when you network with other people, you'll get a pretty good understanding of, okay, now I know enough to do this. Now I've got the confidence to go do this. Enough is enough. Let me go get some on the job experience training now. Absolutely. And you also kind of have to find that author or that podcast host or that coach that has the same mindset as you and the one, the style of real estate investing and education that fits you the most. So for example, for me, a book that was written about real estate investing by an engineer is not going to resonate with me because it's going to be a lot of spreadsheets <laughs> and it needs to be like, you know, down to this percentage. Right. I need somebody who's more of like a big picture person and not a, a detail like engineer type. So totally. I need that author over there or that podcast host over there that's more uh, along the same communication and thinking style that I have. So sometimes it takes like you might read one real estate investing book and go, oh, uh, this is not for me. This sounds like I can't do this. But then you read one by a different person coming from a different place and it totally resonates with you. So don't stop at one is my suggestion for sure. That's such a good point. That's such a good point. Because yeah, you could read one bad book that was written poorly and you're like, nah, real estate investing sucks, not for me. And so you write off an entire industry because of one author. I No, I love that. Go find the person that fits no. for you. Love exactly. It. And along those same lines, I didn't even mean to lead into this like this, but what's your favorite book that has impacted your mindset? I was chatting about it at the beginning of, of the show, and it's for sure Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It's such, it's such a good book. I give it to so many people that I think need to get involved in doing something other than working their job. And it's an easy read. It's a good, it's a cool story, independent of whether it's totally factual or not. I think there's some really great lessons, some good nuggets in there. And it's what got me started on this journey, uh, you know, almost a decade ago. So I'm super thankful to have come across it. Same here, same here. And actually, when I was probably 19, I was bartending at a really touristy barbecue joint in Austin called The County Line. And a guy that, that came in like there a pretty fun place. Yeah, it was fun. It had a really great view. It was out in the hill country. Uh, but there was a regular that came in there and he gave me Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Really? Then. And I didn't read it. I was like, eh, I know what this says. For shame, Avery. I know. Like, I, I was like, I've listened to Dave Ramsey. I know what this is going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I've got it all figured out. I don't need this book. Yeah. Like four or five years later, when I actually did read it, I was like, oh, this is not at all what I thought it was going to be. I wish I would have read this back then because I might be, you know, this many steps further down the path already. But right. yeah, that's my, I haven't said that before to uh, anyone on the air. So yes. Ooh, I first. Yep. I received Rich Dad, Poor Dad and did not read and it. I didn't read it. At 19. No. We'll have to do another episode called Confessions of Avery Carl. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably a lot of stupid ones in there. Um, all right. Well, Michael, thank you so, so much for coming. It has been a pleasure, um, a pleasure interviewing you. And if our listeners, almost said if our guests, if our listeners want to reach out to you, where can they find you? Thanks so much, Avery. Um, uh, you can find me on roostockacademy.com or on Twitter. I'm at Michael Albom. I'm fairly active on there as well. Probably the best places to find me. LinkedIn, I guess, works too. So th thanks cool. so much for having me, Avery. It was really a pleasure to, to be on with you. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming. We'll catch you later. All right. Take care.